Christian brings out the Ross Perot in me. It's true. <laughs> so, because he that insists like on not of... letting me finish when I'm trying to express something that takes more than three or four words. Yeah. You bring out the Ross um, Perot in me sounds like some kind of 70s oh. ballad or something, it's doesn't really it? really groovy. And I drive a Volare. <laughs> well, what do we... I, I, I hit record. Cool. We're going. I got some coffee here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to perk back up. It's all good. You've also got a little Biscoff cookie there for later. It's yeah. It it's came a, attached. It came to attached. The coffee only, holder as a promotional item. I don't rec. I, I, yeah. I, okay. I thought it was a reward. There's a contest later. <laughs> we <laughs> as, can do that. As it turns out, this is this is for you, Jason. Oh, you don't you. like those cookies? We've got Jason Cade in I, the in the studio today, oh, live in the studio. Yes. I'm Glad gonna, to be here. I'm gonna fight Jason for that cookie later. I'm gonna let you have it. Okay. I really like them. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. You have the healthy thing like an apple. I have an apple and a seltzer. Wow. Well, this is gripping so far. <laughs> <laughs> they can't all be moments laden with uh, meaning and important discussion. No, I guess. I don't see why not, though. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's proceed then. See why they Welcome, can. Jason. Thank you thank for joining you. us. Glad to be here. Uh, Long-time fan. Oh, thank you. Uh, so last time we <laughs> Long-time talked listener, about... first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> last time we talked with uh, Steve Vladek about uh, sort of the... the the incoming side of the immigration system and your, your new UC Davis paper is sort of the, the outgoing side of the immigration system, I guess, in a way. Yeah. So you, you, when you, by incoming, you mean folks who are seeking admission or entry to the United States. Right. Or, yeah. Applying for a visa, yeah. arriving on a visa, maybe lawful permanent residents returning. Right. Uh, this, the kind of stuff that, that was in the executive order and the TRO and all that other stuff. Jump in here, Christian. How am I doing? Sounds you, good so far. You're doing, I mean, Usually you're, you're so eager to interrupt. Yeah, what, so. <laughs> this whole thing is just such a giant mess. Just what an utter mess. And, and part of, you know, Jason's paper, which we're going to link up is it is a, it's a broad kind of, it kind of picks up on some things that happened before the nineties, but it's mainly a history of the, uh, of the, of the judicial changes kicked off by Congress's adventures in immigration in the 1990s, namely the, you know, New Gingrich's contract with America legislation, the uh, Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act combined with the Illegal Immigration Reform Act, IRIRA. Um, was that well, part then, of the same co- contract with America stuff? It's all I part of the contract. Yeah. That was part that it was part of that. Yes. Fascinating. So, so summarize this for, given that your paper kind of takes that as a backdrop and a jumping off point, what is, for people who don't know, and, and immigration law seems so complex to me, and I, and I teach patent law, which is a way to say to everyone, I'm used to things that are complex, but I think immigration law is way more complex than patent law, way more. So help us understand a little bit better, if, even for non-lawyers, what, like what happened in the mid-90s and what? And why? And what are we, what aftermath are we still struggling to deal with? Um, the, the what happened is a little easier than the why. So um, I'll start with that. The, uh, I mean, you're right. It's a, it, immigration code is extremely complicated. It's, it's you know, been around for, um, you know, now almost 100 years. And it's been, um, or actually 100 years, and it's been amended piecemeal fashion and sometimes with broad strokes um, over that century. In the 90s, there were some very significant changes that Congress made through those two statutes that um, uh, Christian mentioned. And they did a lot of detailed things that matter to folks who are kind of in the weeds of immigration practice and also that matter, obviously, to immigrants themselves. Um, But 
you, you can you can speak about some generalities um, that they accomplished, and and one of the things that they did um, was that I that I have written about in a number of papers um, is they kind of really widened the net of who counts um, who 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 triggers deportation proceedings. And so they widened the the kinds of categories that would lead to deportation, even for lawfully present uh, non citizens. Is it that same act where they changed the name from deportation to removal? Was it IRIRA where they introduced removal, or was that before? You know, uh, that was actually that was actually after. Was it? I think that was a, um, well. By the time I was clerking and dealing with some of the like yeah. initial like post Saint Cyr, what do we do with IRIRA and retroactivity cases in other areas? I, they they were calling it removal, and I just I was curious whether it was. And whether yeah, removal no, you, was d- intended to be like a, a, a kinder, gentler form of deportation, which is a kinder, gentler form of banishment, like not in terms of like what they actually do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, the legal change that, that they accomplished was um, uh, more nuanced than that. It was so it, it, it used to be that you were either subject to exclusion provisions or deportation provisions. And um, that was the dividing line from that was your physical presence inside the country. So um, ex- exclusion provisions have always been broader and more restrictive than deportation provisions. And we can sort of get into why. Um, so if you're excludable, so, you can't come in or, right. or, or, or you may not be able to come you're in. You're asking permission to come in. Right. And you can be denied for all kinds of reasons. You know, mm-hmm. reasons. So you're excluded from entry. You're excluded from entry. And then deportation is once you're here, and I suppose you might have arrived here on a, on a, in a lawful basis, or you might have arrived here in a not lawful basis. But once you're here, uh, I guess the question could arise, would we want to make you leave? And right. we call that deportation. Does removal is just a synonym for that now, right? It's not. Does removal mean something different from deportation? Well, the, the change that um, was, the, the legal change was that um, instead of exclusion, they started calling that aspect, aspect of it um, admission. So instead of being subject to exclusion uh, um, grounds, you were subject to inadmissibility grounds. And the difference is that the inadmissibility grounds um, remain, you remain subject to them even if you're inside the United States, if you were not formally admitted through a lawful process. Mm. Right. And so, and then. But, but a lawful process is like, so, so if you're at the border and, and I actually don't, don't know what uh, some of these grounds, I know what some of them are, but not all of them. But I imagine if you have certain kinds of, uh, of diseases, communicable diseases, you might not be, um, you might be excludable, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't imagine that anybody would be deportable because they contract a disease within the United States. Is, is that one of the, one of the ways in which deport to, uh, deportability is broader than excludability? Uh, yes. Um, and other ways are, for example, that you, you can be, there, there, there are, um, different and more categories of, um, like say criminal offenses that you mm-hmm. could be held to be inadmissible, um, for. And in fact, you can be inadmissible, um, if the officer just has reason to believe the immigration officer just has reason to believe that you have, con- um, committed an inadmissible, right. an offense that, that right. falls in that category. Whereas, Deportation, say of a lawfully permanent resident or other lawfully present non-citizen, can only be predicated on an actual criminal conviction. Right. So you, you the, this, the. Um, so there's some asymmetries between different. trying to uh, 
trying to arrive here and be here for the first time if you're a citizen of some other place. Uh, and you, you've been here, you're here, you're doing stuff here. Uh, again, are we, are we going to insist that you leave, right? There's an asymmetry that's sort of built in. And I think that makes some sense. Yeah. Where it gets complicated, though, is that um, although you might be subject to grounds of inadmissibility, even if you're inside the United States because you were never lawfully admitted, uh, other protections such as the Constitution can start to kick in. And so you get, um, for, the, for the most part, um, and this is actually something that we might see change you know, in, the new, in the Trump administration, you, you actually still get full-on deportation pr- removal proceedings, mm. um, just like any lawfully present non-citizen, even if you're you know, entered with the United States without inspection, if you're here. And, th- and that's just part of the statute, right? So, so far, we, we, you know, and it's important, and, and as we go through and as you go through in the paper, it's important to distinguish what the statute provides, what judges have interpreted the statute to provide in light of the Constitution, and what judges have decided the Constitution, in fact, requires. and. As a statutory matter, you know, once you're here, removal requires more than than you would have um, than 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 in, than an uh, borders off, uh, officer would have required to exclude you. Um, but also, the constitu- you're a person, right? And the Constitution uh, gives due process or requires due process be afforded to persons, not just citizens. Which is interesting because the you know I, we we talked about this the other day. I think the the link on the White House website to the Constitution. Have you seen it, Jason? I have. Um, and it doesn't use the word persons when it describes the, uh, <laughs> when, the it paraphrases, yeah, yeah. when it paraphrases, when it paraphrases the Bill of Rights. Right. There are some, there, there, there are of course some provisions of the constitution, which do mention citizens, but, but right. due process is not one of those. And, and many of the criminal, um, many of the criminal constitutional protections. Right. The fourth amendment. Right. Yeah. Now I have to say this was alarming to me because it seems totally consistent with a, with a harsh view of, of immigrants that is consistent with all of the rhetoric from the Trump campaign in the early days of the Trump administration. However, that is the same summary of the Constitution which appeared on the Obama White House. That's what I heard. Summary of the Constitution, yeah. which to me is, it, it makes it no less of an abomination right. to say that, you know, it guarantees citizens due process uh, of law. And one would have thought these things were short enough that they didn't really need to be paraphrased. I mean, <laughs> right. you could, why don't you just put, type them in, right? right? Just, uh, just type in the sentence. Oh. Yeah. Right. Well, that, well, that's a long way around, but go, yeah, go yeah, ahead, Yeah, well, I mean, one of the ironies, of course, is that um, I've spent my academic career so far criticizing the Obama administration's handling of um, the immigration system in, in some respects. And, of course, and you do and, in this paper and, as and well, right? I do in this paper as well. But, but you, just to react to one thing you said, um, it's, so a, a lot of this is statutory, and I think that's um, really important, and, and if we have a chance to talk about the um, the litigation in the Ninth Circuit and these stays of of the recent executive order. Um, we can this is of, in the Washington against Trump case. Yeah, I th- I think it's um, it, my personal view is that there are, there are actually better statutory arguments than constitutional arguments for most of those mm. provisions. But um, it is important to recognize that this is not just that the this idea of of um, what kind of procedure is due to persons who are inside the United States really comes from the Supreme Court. And, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, way back in 1904, 1905, there's a case called Yamatai v. Fisher. Um, this was a woman who had been admitted, who was really only here for four days. Um, but that was long enough for the Supreme Court to decide that she had a constitutional right to due process. She got terrible process. And at the time they said that process was good enough. But the, the important part was the hook of finding that constitutional due process applies. And then as 
that law has you know evolved over a century that it, that evolution will also transfer onto persons who are facing we, deportation. We talked about this with Steve last week, and I feel like we talked about it with Steve even the last time he was on before that. This mm. this idea that due process has in the in the modern era, maybe the post O'Connor and and Kennedy era, become this flexible inquiry, which can be about more or less, and and is now there's an explicit test instead of kind of using a legal fiction, which pretends that due process is the same in all cases. But in fact, some, as, as you point out, sometimes people get less or, or using categories, which then have to be analogized. Instead, you just have this flexible inquiry. In that case that you described in the early 20th century, was it a case where the court said, yeah, there's due process, but you get the sense that had she been here longer, her interests would have grown and would have counted for more? Or was it just the fact that she was an immigrant? Or was it just the fact that it was an administrative proceeding rather than a, than a technically criminal one? Like how did what what kind of sense did you get from that? Well, of course, that that case way predates, you know, Matthews v. Eldridge and the right. sort of explicit balancing tests of private interests. And so they they um, haven't read that case for a while, but I think their analysis of the actual, you know, interests at stake was pretty thin. It was just more that she was entitled to due process. The due process, I mean, the, what the process she got would never survive under a modern due process analysis. It was like a hearing conducted in a language that she didn't even speak without, mm. without a, you know, interpreter. And, mm. um, <laughs> that doesn't sound particularly effective. <laughs> yeah. So, the, so the kind the that, wouldn't, the that wouldn't even suffice for someone who'd only been in the United States for an hour these days. Correct. Like there's, there's some minimal floor. Yeah. Right. So that case really, the actual, it doesn't stand for anything, I think, in, in, as far as figuring out what processes actually do. It just stands for the, you know, a hook a, a kind of to, to bring the constitution in for people who, um, have, who are present inside the United States. Now, there is an, uh, there is an important... Whether legally or however they got here. However they got here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, statutorily, there, there are some pretty big differences. If, if you um, uh, are apprehended within 100 miles of the border, you can be subjected to this expedited removal proceedings, which are, are you know, less processed than you would get in a normal deportation court. You're not before a, a neutral immigration judge. Instead, it's a DHS employee and the kind um, there's there's recent very bad case law saying that you don't even have a right to an attorney in in, in this kind of proceeding. yeah. So this is I, I was thinking about this just the other day because when people you, when you hear that phrase if you're within a hundred miles of the border, I think everyone thinks of like the Mexican border and and some zone you know in Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and, and California where where you know there is enhanced surveillance and enhanced and, and you are just subject to something which is more like martial law. Um, but aren't all of the U.S., the high population coastal cities, Boston, New York, aren't all of those within 100 miles of the border? Or, or, or does it refer to just the Texas border? I mean, I know there are some provisions which give enhanced like search powers to, to ICE or, or, uh, or um, the Customs and Border Patrol folks within 100 miles of the border. Like that's every major city on the East Coast, right? And also, also along the northern border. I mean, um, the, uh, there was a time, you know, more like 10 years ago, where ICE uh, and CBP were doing a lot of activity on Amtrak trains, you know, there were even, even, even trains and buses that weren't departing the country under this authority that they had within 100 miles of the border. Um, and the, but, 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 but the expedited removal is actually broader um, than even just 100 miles of the border. It also applies to people who are here without authorization, who have allegedly um, committed an aggravated felony. Mm-hmm. They also are 
are shunted into these more expedited proceedings. And of course, if you, ha- if you, ha- if you can show a credible fear of a um, persecution, you can kind of get out um, from expedited removal and get before an immigration judge to, to make an asylum claim. On asylum grounds. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we didn't just jump into the weeds. We, we jumped are. into the amoeba that lives inside the weeds. <laughs> so can we go back to the mid nineties and sort yeah. of create yeah. a bit, a bit more of a background and context for this sort of change that you seem to map in your paper where the court is taking a view of discretion and executive discretion. But it seems like I, it's hard to think about that and talk about that if we don't have a sense for what the executive was being asked to do that was new. Yeah. And the way that immigration law seems to have been through a great transformation in the mid-90s. So what, what was that great transformation, if I'm perceiving correctly, that that, that happened? Okay, so we, what we've, the weeds that we've gotten into so far um, are all just, and there, there are many more weeds we could cover. Um, <laughs> always more weeds, always more weeds. Are <laughs> illustrations of how the net for deportability and removability widened in the 90s. So a lot more per- persons, including lawful permanent residents, became subject to deportation, including on the basis of, um, uh, you know, criminal convictions that states treat as pretty minor. Um, turnstile jumping, look really low-level uh, drug possession crimes, things like so that. So what was the theory? I mean, Congress just sort of looks at the list and says, you know, there are all sorts of reasons why we feel like, gosh, if you do this stuff, you shouldn't be able to live here anymore. Uh, or if you're visiting here, you shouldn't be able to stay. So let's just like add to this list. Can I say? Was that the theory? B- before we get an expert weighing in on this, because I, I feel like I'm an expert because I was alive then. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember that election. And I, <laughs> I'll tell you exactly what the theory was. The theory was we can win a lot of seats in Congress if we run on a platform of executing bad people more quickly more, and, uh, and punishing them more harshly and kicking out foreigners. That is the sum total that rammed all this stuff through, I think. Um, that, that is my professional opinion as someone who is not a professional in this, <laughs> in this yeah, area. I mean, and, and my recollection of, the, of, that, of that election, if, if we're talking about the 94 election. Exactly. Uh, my, rec- my, my, my recall on that is, is, is not that. It's not so much that it was that. It was this sort of, you know, um, tax cuts, uberalis kind of economic agenda. So I don't remember the other stuff as clearly, which is why I was asking before, wow, that was really part of the controversy. Like, I didn't recall that. So, so what's the immigration expert's view about how to think about that great transformation you know, and I, why it happened? So I, here I'm, I'm just going to have to rely on what others have written about the sort of why, because that, my focus has just been on the what and, mm-hmm. and, the, and, the, and what's happened since then. Um, you, you know, some think it's, it was, it's a part of the war on drugs, um, like Christian alluded to, I think. There's almost always political capital in making criminal, um, in, in punishing criminals. Um, and, um, you know, of course, there are these recurring um, nativist themes that, throughout our history. Um, so, uh, and then there was, and then there's also just the, um, the reality that these, these statutes were both, uh, or these, these immigration reforms were part of larger bills that were almost guaranteed to pass. So one mm. of them was an omnibus budget bill. You know, the other one was an anti-terrorism death penalty bill. Um, this was a Republican-controlled Congress. And um, this is, of course, you know, under President Clinton, who um, was not soft on crime or didn't want to be seen as soft on crime. So it was a kind of a, it was a good uh, environment in, order to, in which to pass a lot of restrictive 
um, immigration provisions. And the less corroborated word on the street is that, um, you know, restrictionist um, think tanks were given um, pretty good access to the actual minutia of um, writing these bills and that a lot of the um, congressional people who, uh, uh, Congress people who, who, who signed it didn't even really know what they were getting because we haven't even sort of gotten to the other piece of what the, the change that was affected. But after the, these two large immigration bills were passed in the, in the 90s, the agency started to implement the new directive that it had received from Congress. And um, that meant starting to put lawful permanent residents who had now deportable convictions um, into removal proceedings, even if those convictions were very old, um, and even where the lawful permanent resident you know, seemed to had no other indications that they were a, a danger. Was that just sort of a, an effort on the part of the Clinton administration to say, you know, message received, like, we hear you, we know you want to make this more uh, restrictive in this way, and so we're going to show you that we got the message. Because uh, what sense does it make to go back and say, you know, ah, this you, you, this happened ten years ago, but you're an LPR, and so we can remove you, so we're going to remove you. I mean, it's kind of weird. It yeah. strikes me uh, it's just bizarre behavior on the part of the executive. What good does it do to to take someone who they did something wrong, they got punished for it, it was ten years ago, they're a productive member of their community. Uh, hey, let's go totally disrupt their lives and the but lives of all their friends. The whole and- the whole philosophy of IRIRA and EDPA is irredeemability, right? That society is a little bit sick. And if we could just expunge, you know, the people who shouldn't be, you know, it basically it goes with welfare yeah, reform too, to right? A, it's like, I, pe- I don't mean to be obtuse, but, it, but it, it, and, and I get what you're saying. I sort of understand it as a, as a theory, but I just feel like, and maybe I'm making a distinction that isn't that the law doesn't track, but it just seems like lawful permanent residents, that, that's like, that itself is an achievement. Of, right. of, you know, I'm going to be here long term and I've been through a process and I'm now, and I'm here now and I, you know, I'm part of, I'm part of life and culture you're, and my you're community. Right. I mean, you're seeing something abstractly that, that, that very many people see on an individual basis, but where there is kind of split in society as to whether we see it abstractly. Let me, and this gets into, I think Jason's, you know, Jason's approach to finding kind of the evolution of proportionality, the evolution of discretion. So. You just said, uh, you just told a story about someone who has done something, but now becomes a productive member of society. I, I kind of hate that phrase. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it is a little weird. It is. It's like. It's it, very judgy. Well, it's they very did this judgy. thing and it's long over and done and, and nothing new has happened to make, right. to, to make it seem like they, they wouldn't be a good member of society. Right. So with, so with this 212C relief, this thing, which was in the oh wall boy. before this was, this was a We're stack back in the weeds folks. This, well, no, this was a, this was basically, even if you are deportable because you've committed a crime of, of a deportable type, it used to be before IRIRA that you could go, was it an immigration judge who would initially make the determination, <laughs> That's right. Jason? Yeah. Who, who would then be able to make make a discretionary decision about you know looking at your ties and other things and decide okay even though you committed this crime should you stay for exactly the reasons you mentioned right and i think in the abstract and i think you see this in criminal law more generally people are like wait if you don't play by the rules and and you don't have an entitlement to be here anyway maybe you shouldn't be here right the, the people are very quick to jump on that bandwagon and yet 212c relief was commonly granted i think right right well so from the very first since, since we first had criminal deportation grounds. 
there is there was always a um, mechanism for balancing to determine a person's overall equities and whether they're you know the the good outweighed the bad. Um, that um, and and as Christian was just saying, that was it was it was commonly granted. In fact, it was granted more than half the time. So something like at least in you know the 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 ten years um, that that constituted the nineties, um, it was granted. Um, and this isn't even taking into account the instances where there's been. Uh, the LPR committed a crime at some point and, and, and the um, immigration authority never brings them forward to initiate a deportation. Like, so there's a percentage of people who the deportation thing isn't even started. Right. And then among those against whom it had been started, you're saying half or more when they said, wait a minute, you shouldn't really kick me out because I've got a great explanation for why I'm actually a good person to have around, notwithstanding this mistake I made, um, that they, there's the immigration a judge would say, okay, you're right. You, you should stay. It's like the difference. Yes. And, and I, I think, yeah. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like the difference between saying, gosh, if someone's a burglar, meaning they break into someone's house, it, like the worst kind, break into someone's house at night and they steal stuff, right? How much time should they serve? I think abstractly people say that that's a terrible thing to do. <laughs> Probably like 20 years, put them away. Right. I mean, that, I would never do that. Like anyone yeah. who does that. And then when jurors Terrible actually- in part because of how dangerous it is. Exactly. I mean, well, what if you get confronted you, right. and then said people get hurt and it's, you know, people react that way for, for reasons that I think are very easy to understand. Or, or even yeah. in capital crimes. And, but when a jury actually looks at the case and, and looks not at abstractly weighing abstract harms against, you know, general punishments, but actually ask themselves what should happen to this person, it turns out people become much more merciful, right? Our, our, our compassionate faculties are, are activated across the board, around, you know, regardless of whether you're, uh, you know, a hardcore conservative, generally politically about p- crime and punishment and immigration or a bleeding heart liberal, like, you know, when you're actually in front of the real person, I think everyone's compassion is kind of activated and, and, um, and sense of justice, right, for the victim or for anything yeah. else. So, um, so, so that's my sense, right? That 212C was always very powerful precisely because it had a decision maker confronting an actual story of an actual person for whom they were responsible. And it's not, the, it's not in the executive's hands at that stage. That, well, well it's, it is in the sense that uh, immigration judges are DOJ employees. Ah, yes. Um, but they're independent. They're, they're, you know, they're career judges in... Um, so it's not the same person who's deciding to bring forward the, I want to, de- we think this person should get deported. Right. That's, that's a separate arm of the agency. Yeah. Okay. And so and, in that sense, they were independent. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, the, so, so here's the, the story, right? The story is Congress in the 90s widened the net, got rid of 212C and any number of other kind of equitable based mechanisms for adjudicators like immigration judges to decide that a person's um, removal should be set aside. They, they, kept a, they kept some, but they're very tightly constrained and, and, and hard to qualify for. Um, the argument in the paper, and this is not, this, I'm not alone in making this argument. I mean, in fact, this is an argument that's very well um, accepted in the criminal field, is that that doesn't necessarily mean you've got no more equitable consideration in immigration decisions anymore. It's just that it shifts it shifts the act, uh, it shifts that decision to a different actor. So instead of a back-end decision, now that decision has to be made by one of the front-end prosecutors um, or ICE agents making arrests or even just local or state police who are determining whether to turn somebody over to um, ICE. And the, and the existence of that discretion, I mean, the, the, the portion of the paper 
that that I spent the most time on and was and struck me as the most interesting was the way in which the existence of that executive discretion influenced the court's understanding of the role that states should play vis-a-vis the national government. And, I, and it, to me, it's, it was sort of like the upside-down version of the anti-commandeering principle in federalism, like the national government can't commandeer state governments. Right. And, and the Arizona case seems to say, and by the way, states, you can't commandeer our immigration law. Like that's that's a role the national government is going to play, and and it's the executive discretion that makes that so apparent. But but it it they seem to be ha- making a federalism point as well. Is that is that fair description? Yeah, I like that way of of looking at it. Um, yeah. So so we're talking about the Arizona of the United States decision, and um, and that was one of that was a decision that was actually one of many where the federal government under the Obama administration was challenging a state effort at controlling and enforcing immigration law. Um, and they did that through, you know, preemption um, type claims. What, uh, but I think what's so interesting about the case is the degree to which the Supreme Court kind of acknowledged that, that when, if you're going to have discretion in the immigration system, it's lying with enforcement actors and uh, that they even endorse this idea that executive authorities could be determining could be should be could or should be um, weighing, you know, the, a, a person's total life situation and making those kinds of decisions, and that that's relevant um, for a preemption analysis for the reasons that you just said that it that if you otherwise to do, to to rule otherwise allows states to kind of control um, who's going who's actually getting referred to immigration. But it's this strange story that gets us there, right? I mean, it's so we have IRIRA, which tries to create. And maybe not totally, but tries to create more rigid categories and more automatic removals and, and just a, um, a system that turns the federal government into a little bit more of a deportation machine than one which balances equities. And then you have, uh, uh, after that, a series of Supreme Court decisions, some de- starting off dealing with the retroactivity, but then gradually building in, you know, with indefinite detention and other things that you discuss in the article, the Zavitas, and then the Demore versus Kim, all this is really hard to figure out, but yeah, uh, yeah. Um, w- gradually building in either as a statutory interpretation matter or a direct constitutional matter, areas for discretion and areas where the federal government must use its discretion. And, and so you get a, a, a kind of slow accretion of, uh, of, of additional discretion about whether to remove and how to enforce and layer it on top of all that, of course, is an insufficient budget actually to turn the you can't possibly catch everybody. You can't possibly, even if you wanted to do something as cruel as separate families. And, you know, if, even if you wanted to do that to the max, you couldn't do it probably with any budget, but certainly not with the one that they have. And so there's some inherent prosecutorial discretion, which you also talk about in, in the article. And so you have all this discretion and then you have a bunch of states who are trying to push back for political reasons or whatever, say, hey, let us help you to the extent that you're exercising discretion because you can't do it all. Let us do some. And, and Arizona against the United States is where, you know, the, the, the U.S. government switching back and saying, you know what, we kind of like this discretion. And, and then we ultimately get to the Texas case where that discretion is kind of pushed to the point of creating a new rule, right? I mean, if you say I'm going to exercise my discretion in this way, according to these rules, you know, th- there is a decent argument that you've essentially made law, 
right? Yep. Um, and, and and now that's kind of being flipped and turned around in in the in the airport cases and in right. the Washington case. So yep. is that so a, is, is that a general is that arc fair or or my or is that unfair? No, I think that's I think that is fair. Um, yeah, I think I think that's right. Yep. If the states, if Arizona's approach had not been to try to make things more mechanical as Congress itself appeared to try to do in the mid-90s. Would they have fared so poorly at the Supreme Court? What do you mean by mechanical? Well, the, the sort of, um, to, to, to make it, again, more, more, more machine-like, less discretion, sort of everyone's going to get this treatment and we're gonna, we're, everyone's going to be stopped, everyone's going to be referred. Everyone, it's like, you know, but the Fed, if the federal authority isn't interested in rounding those people up and putting them in that process, that that's, you're contradicting a manifestation of the national government's discretionary decision there. So you, you Arizona, seem to want to make it mechanical again. Mm-hmm. Like we, we get, it gets more mechanized in the mid nineties over time. Some of the play in the joints develops and we understand it's executive, not, not immigration judge. It's, it, it, or we're going to expose through state law, how this was never a resource issue with you, Obama's Obama administration in the first place that this is, we're going to expose that this is policy. So that, right. So that could be another overtone to it, but in terms of the way it plays out in the, in the Supreme court's. Um, you get the impression that the that the court is critical of the Arizona law because it's a it's in part an effort to kind of retrench back on discretion the court had identified as being salutary up to that point. Yeah, you know, Although maybe I'm overreading that. No, I don't know. It's it's hard to know. I mean, I think so. I think one um, one big issue, one big problem with this with allowing states to control the kind of the feeder to the pipeline is goes back to the resource issue for sure, because that means that certain states are going to um, use up the, the federal machinery, you know, with cases that might not be high priorities. And so it, so it insulating the government's decision-making from that is something that, that is useful if you want to have a rationally functioning nationally and rationally functioning immigration system. Right. And it's right. not as though the Obama administration dragged its feet, as you point out in the article, I mean, the number of people detained awaiting deportation, the number of people deported or removed, that is, that's exploded. Right. They, the, uh, the Obama administration deported more non-citizens in total than, than like in history in total before that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but, and they did, and they, they did it in, in a way that I, that is, uh, that can be in ways that can be criticized, but that are defensible in terms of they they attempted to have a rational approach so in terms they, of priorities. In terms it's of not, priorities, yeah, right? Yeah. So they 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 put um, major priority on determining if people had criminal grounds for um, deportation, and even just using the criminal system as a way to prioritize among the unauthorized. Um, non citizen population. But they were the ones who pushed some of these cases you discuss where. The, the the criminal violation was, n- you know, not one that you would ordinarily, ordinarily think of as worthy of banishment, right? I mean, you point out like low-level drug crimes, and this is where you get this whole series of Supreme Court cases which say, no, the, the crime has to map directly to one of, you know, it has to, has to be equivalent, a necessary, like, you know, it must be a necessary implication of the state conviction that it would have qualified for this federal conviction which is in the right category in order to be deportable. So it can't, it's got to be a really serious drug cl- crime, I guess, instead of one where it's about paraphernalia or 
that was the, what was the one case about basically the equivalent of two marijuana cigarettes? Yeah. Am I right so, about that? So, I, I'm trying no, to remember. You're, 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 you're right. Um, so the court, you know, in a whole series of cases has reinvigorated the, in the immigration context, the categorical approach to analyzing the consequences of a, of a conviction that's also been actually reinvigorated in the sentencing context at the same time. And the, the effect of that is to narrow, usually to narrow the, the kinds of convictions that will trigger certain deportation. This is the effect of what the court's grounds. done. Mm-hmm. I only raise it because it shows that although the Obama administration was prioritizing and trying to have a sensible, justifiable regime of deportation they, as they it were, ramped them up, it, it did push the envelope on some of these low-level crimes, which... Right. They were very yeah. aggressive in, in seeking the most, um, in, in seeking to have various uh, convictions classified as the kind of the most egregious grounds for removal, um, like which, for example, the aggravated felony. Um, in the aggravated felony ground, you don't get any chance to argue for something called cancellation of removal, which is the modern equivalent of the 212C relief we were talking about before. It's a, it's a sort of a balancing test, just, just a little bit more Restricted. So there are two things here that seem like they're at right angles to each other. One is the, um, the, the question about proportionality as a value and whether that's a good value and, and if it is a good value, how to implement it. And that seems like a very judicially focused set of concepts. That's things judges have talked about for time out of mind mm-hmm. and implemented in a variety of doctrines in a variety of areas of law. The sort of independent issue off the right angle from that is executive action and whether it can be reviewed. And maybe it's some of the Ninth Circuit oral argument recording that I heard the other day that has me thinking about this as as an analytically important separate thing, right? But so I can understand the Supreme Court engendering more focus on proportionality because that's the sort of thing that would feel very comfortable for judges to do. On the other hand, right, it it's, it's doesn't help you answer the question, who should be engaging in figuring out what is proportional to what? And, and important allocation of power questions turn on sometimes on the idea that, hey, it would be great for you to be proportional in what you do, but ultimately it's going to be up to you. And I'm not going to have any say over whether you're proportional or not. So I feel like what, how, do the, how do you see these two things relating to each other, either in, in the instance of what you've laid out in the, in the court's history or, or even some of these issues going forward? Because so, I feel like executive discretion, I'm sorry I keep talking, but I just feel fine. like executive yeah. discretion, <laughs> it, it, it just seems like, in my mind, and I'm reminded of this thing Alex Kaczynski, Judge Alex Kaczynski wrote a year or two ago about criminal law and this sort of critique of criminal law. And there's a sense in which sort of tons and tons of executive discretion, in my mind, is terrible. It is a terrible thing to foster because, because prosecutors aren't generally accountable for deciding to charge X, Y, or Z in any regularized on the sense. Front, on the they front and the back it. end. On the front and the back end. You know, a lot of discretion. Like, like the, in this context, you think the best solution is like, and people are fighting for the ability of some executive actor to be able to have a lot of discretion to decide whether to, whether to impose banishment. Like, you know, if we get down to it. And so, you know, what we want is for the Obama administration, this is if you're in favor of like DAPA and DACA, like to be able to exercise its executive discretion on the front end. And then people are fighting for something like 212C on the back end. And, and I take your question to be in part, Joe, like 
people are fighting for this ability not to treat like cases alike. I guess with Obama and DAPA and DACA, that is an effort to, to kind of crystallize that executive discretion into which is something why, which is law-like. They, they struck yeah. me as, as salutary and preferable to, to, because yeah. it was an act of self-restraint and, and articulated ex ante. Right. right. And right. Ma- and so it felt less arbitrary. To me, discretion is a synonym for arbitrariness, at least some of the time. And and so I don't understand why people would be like, oh, executive discretion. Terrific. To me, it's like, that's scary. that can be scary. So, help, yeah. you know, talk me off the ledge here. Well, so first, uh, just sort of taking it back to my article for a minute. I mean, what I do in the articles, I show that a- across a range of different kinds of decisions, the court appears to be doing what it can to just increase the possibility that somebody is going to be balancing these things. So sometimes that takes the form of imp- implementing a statutory analysis that will make fewer crimes be aggravated felonies. Sometimes it's, it's, imp- it's, a, it's preserving rights to reopen removal proceedings when you've got new evidence bearing on your right to remain in, in the United States. Um, it's the preemption case that we've talked about where you sort of keep the, the, the state government out of it. Uh, we didn't talk about the Padilla v. Kentucky case, but that's right. a, a kind of a critical key, um, touchstone in this because that's really where, where Justice Stevens laid out everything that I laid out in the article too, which is the way the immigration law has changed. So there's no more back-end discretion and, and sort of right. creating a structure that will increase the possibility that in criminal plea negotiations, people are going to just be actually be talking about the immigration consequences and taking those into account. And this allows someone to, to make a claim about ineffective assistance of counsel if they were not told about the immigration consequences of that which they were going to plead to? Yeah, that's the Sixth Amendment piece of it. But, but Justice Stevens was really explicit that what he hoped would come out, one of the things he hoped would come out of it is, was he, what he called creative plea bargaining mm-hmm. in order to come up with a sentence that reflected both the, the penal consequence and the potential immigration consequence. But, but at the end of the day, as I say in the article, um, and this is just really in a way echoing, I think, one of your points, Joe, um, the court has never said what it, what it thinks would be a proportional result, right, in any particular case. Um, instead, it's just, it's just saying someone should be thinking about proportionality here. <laughs> and, you know, we're going to do some things that will structurally make that possible to the extent that we can. Um, but... You know, you could have a different administration as we do now that would have a completely different set of priorities, including, you know, going after um, a, a longtime uh, undocumented immigrant who's who's showing up for their parole hearings uh, or probation hearings with their immigration officer and has been doing that for eight years and has never gotten into trouble. Right. As now um, this is a, a story in The New York Times today is now um, and she reported for her last probation meeting is now in, uh, taken into detention and put in removal proceedings. Um, or as, as we're speaking right now, there are raids going on in Atlanta um, neighborhoods where mm. so allegedly, you know, ICE officers are, are knocking door to door on, on uh, apartment buildings. So we've had, we've, we've had that before, you know, we had that. Um, this in, this in, morning, just this morning, there was a, um, I saw video and, and reporting in, I think it was Phoenix of a woman who was being deported, protesters had surrounded the van. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's the one you're yeah. mentioning, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, incredible video. I mean, there are people who had tied themselves to the wheels of this van. Her son. Uh, her son. Yeah, and she then has it was, two underage children. And then there's right, a picture are, of her daughter seeing yeah, her citizens. through the window of this van. And they made the van go back, but then maybe it left again. And I'm not sure what's happened with it. But you see these, like, these are very, you know, visceral depictions of, 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 of what these policies mean. 
Yeah, and so you know, in in some ways, this goes back to resources. So if if resources are being used for those kinds of cases, does that mean um, that there are fewer resources available to go after you know serious criminals or serious immigration violators, or will Congress give the Trump administration you know enough money that it that it that it sort of doesn't matter um, who's who's being prioritized. It just do you think it captures what the justices are worried about? I mean, so we can always talk about it. like like DAPA and DACA are all about like how wisely to allocate resources in the absence of some broader immigration reform. But I, I think when people see the kinds of stories that we're talking about, like we're not thinking, you know, what's so bad about that is that, boy, there are so many other people who should have been deported before that woman. It was a waste of our tax dollars to go after that. We're thinking that woman never should have been deported at all. We're thinking the, the, the crime is in separating this family. And I wonder if like, if part of it is our changing sense of the paradigm immigration case. So if you have the view that the, the person who's going to get caught up in all this is the temporary visitor who either crossed without papers or came temporarily and overstayed or, or came uh, legally, but then committed a crime, but wasn't here for very long. It's kind of a, you know, visitor in the classic immigration sense. Then you think, ah, you know, deportation, like, you know, they're just leaving earlier than they had planned. Right. Mm -hmm. And if your paradigm case is, well, this is someone who's not like us and is lucky to be here at all, even if they're here for a long time, then maybe you don't care as much. But the more your sense of the paradigm case is people like us, you know, whether they came here as kids and they don't know any other place or they've built a life here. And in the same way that we've moved between states, you're now in a new community, you're, you're raising a family here, right? And they're, they're basically people like us. And the scheme in which they are caught up is one with, that is administrative rather than criminal in nature. And they are subject to, thing, to detention, let's just say jail, right? To, to prison while they await a decision on whether to be banished, right? We, it, the more you see those as basically criminal in the sense that they are punitive, and they really are, the more that you identify with the person who's caught up in this system, then I think all of this starts to make a hell of a lot more sense. Because what you see is the judicial effort to change the notion of due process and the way it reads statutes through the lens of due process to import more and more of criminal protection into immigration, precisely because there's a recognition that detention awaiting removal and re- is, is like imprisonment and removal is banishment, which is an unheard of punishment for citizens, right? Mm. But, but is essentially, it, the more you see that as punishment, the more you realize, boy, you're going to need at least the kinds of protections that we give. And so I think the Padilla case is an example of that, right? Where like, if, if you, you can't bargain over a punishment without including this other very, very grave potential punishment, right? That's got to be like, you, you'd have to be an idiot lawyer. Not to consider it to be like bargaining over uh, the fine that you're going to pay, but not over the potential for an execution, right? In a, in a plea agreement, right? So, what what do you yeah. is that off base or am I well, right? Well, no, it's not off base, but I just don't know that we have uh, or the justices that are willing to overrule over a hundred years of case law saying that deportation is not punishment. You know, I mean, since the since the 19th century, the Supreme Court's been saying that it's all it's almost it's often been a five four majority kind of decision, um, and it seems to me, I guess, um, as a, as a scholar of this, that the reason that they are, are saying it's not punishment is precisely to avoid what you just said, which is having to import, impose all of the criminal procedure type protections that you would get a jury trial. Yeah, so no, no doubt. And, and, and so my, my, the argument here is not that, um, that they, that 
they have recognized that or even that they should recognize that immediately and we should make a formal change in the law. I'm just trying to think of what's going on in the heads of judges as they, as the whole social notion of an immigrant changes. And yeah. I think you can explain what, yeah. say, Justice Kennedy's done with due process and, yeah. and it, partly by just seeing that change in our minds, that they are actually thinking of these as punishments, even if they are not going to say that they're punishments. So it's a change in the law that is not a formal change in the law, but is nevertheless a potential, and, and it could, could go backwards, but a mm-hmm. potential kind of paradigm shift in understanding of immigration law. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were going to say something, Joe. I forgot. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, what's, I mean, what I would love to have been able to argue in, in, in my paper um, is, or, or, or offer up to the Supreme Court is sort of a way to find a, a more substantive proportionality principle in these cases. And of course, if this was, um, if, this, if, if deportation was um, punished, actual criminal punishment, then you would at least get the Eighth Amendment. Um, but in addition to all the other criminal trial pre- procedural protections that you get. But there is a really interesting article that Mike Wishney from Yale wrote um, a couple years back, uh, called immigration law and the proportionality requirement, and he make he basically makes a a Fifth Amendment proportionality argument. Yeah. Sort of drawing on the um, the those the you know those those cases where there was an excessive um, where the uh, p- punitive damages were way out of line with the actual kind of actual damages. Right. In in those cases, and and then he uses a provision in the immigration statute that says that a judge at the end of removal proceedings has to sort of enter it, right? If, if, if I can't remember exactly the language, but it's like this thing that a judge can do. And so he uses the principle, Wishney uses the principle of constitutional, constitutional avoidance to say that should be interpreted to allow a judge to set aside a removal order if it's out of proportion using the kinds of standards that are set out in those due process cases. And you'd have to think through all the implications of of a judge who's just willing to say that the the line between criminal law and civil law in this area is is indistinct and the 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 purposes of the more specific criminal protections overlap a great deal the less specific liberty due process protections when the government is doing something to human beings that approaches punishment right and to send a child who has never known a foreign land to that foreign land because it is that child's nominal home and maybe birthplace is a kind of it, it is a kind of um kind of it, it's a kind of martial control over another human being that needs to be justified I, I agree and at the same time i see that um and and the the fact that you're separated from your family um is a deeply punishing thing to do to somebody right and the person who's forced to go live in another land, whether they know it or not, and if they know it, it's even worse. That's, yeah, that's, that's really bad in, in separating you from your family. And yet, um, it, it, it just isn't, I mean, to, to say that's tantamount to being imprisoned is to suggest you've never been to a prison. Right? I mean, <laughs> actually making someone live in an imprisonment facility and not some other country, it, it's not the same, right? Well, there, but that's, 
But that is Jennings. I mean, the, the, the Jennings case is about like the long-term detention awaiting removal. I'm making right? a, I'm talking about a person who, by hypothesis, you're taking an individual and you're saying you must leave and you make the, and you forcibly push them out of the country, right? They're now in a different physical location. They're not in the United States anymore, right? They're not imprisoned. I'm not talking about the period when they're waiting to be evaluated because right. then they are in prison. Yeah, but I we're talking that. about long term. They, they are. And, and the very fact that people are willing to talk about the consequence the, of deportation. the very fact that people right. are willing to be imprisoned in order to fight removal tells you something about the balance of those two harms in the minds of those individuals. Agreed. Also, the fact that we do not have banishment as a punishment tells you something about what it's like to be sent away from your homeland to another land, even if that land is not so bad. Like it's, I get it. I get right? it. I, but, well, I, but, but it, I can understand why someone would hesitate to say that that's criminal um, it, because it isn't actually locking you in well, a small I, room. No, I building. don't think you need to say it's criminal. I think what you, what you need to say is that, that the, the full impact on liberty should be evaluated and that for some people that, you know, for, for a United States citizen to be subject to banishment, even if we say it's civil, like we have civil commitment for citizens, we could have civil banishment for citizens, I guess, but for the <laughs> fact that we think it is constitutionally um, abhorrent, right? And, 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 and illegal. So, you know, um, why not look at that full impact on liberty and say that it sure. goes quite far? There's, there, it's not as though no there is a, here. it's not as though there's a maximum volume. Yeah. Right. And this sort of sliding scale thing helps you do that. And clearly, um, yeah, I mean, clearly deportation is not equal for, I mean, it's not equivalent for all the, 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 the consequences of deportation are not equivalent for all people who are deported. Sometimes it'll be much, much worse than any jail sentence. Other times it might be. You know, if you're just going back to London and yeah, then it may, right. maybe it's not so bad. But, um, but I mean, just to be clear, like banishment has been a punishment at other er- eras in history, both, sure. um, you know, worldwide. And so it certainly can be thought of as a punishment. And there are other things that are part of this, the um, immigration penalties that suggest that it, it, that either you know deportation or deportation plus the penalties are in fact very much intended to be punishment. So mm. we have these bans on lawful. Not only do you get deported, but you also have a ban on lawful return. And there's escalating the, those bans. The periods of time that you for which you are banned escalate to ever greater numbers depending on how we have how Congress evaluated the thing that you did here. So if you're deported, you know, on the basis of an aggravated felony, you're permanently banned from returning to the United States. If you are, um, and there is, you know, there's a sort of sliding scale. It goes, goes down to 10 years or something um, based on how long you were in the United States. Um, without, and this could be, I mean, if you have family permission. in the United States, it can be. Whether you were in re-entered without permission, things like that. Yeah. Did you want to talk, speaking of, of that, because I know this is, you know, there were some people who were apparently coerced into signing away their green cards and who were um, coerced into signing away their visas with a promise not to return in five years or something like this in some of these airport cases. Did you want to talk for a minute about either the airport cases or Washington against Trump and your feeling about the TRO and what you heard? I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear your reaction to that argument or to, to any of these events. Dealer's choice. <laughs> sure. Um, well, I mean, the, the, the Washington TRO case is, is super fascinating, obviously. Um, and there's a lot of things we could talk about with that. I think there, you know, the one of the the great ironies of that case is that, you know, I think a lot of people who were who were writing about and thinking about President Obama's DACA and DAPA 
um, executive actions and then the way that those proceeded through the courts um, eh, never thought that so soon mm-hmm. would they be kind of looking at those same cases f- from a different perspective you know as now a constraint because um, in those cases the this Trump is administration. Part, part of the part of the um Texas versus the United States case, which became United States versus Texas at some point, was right. that an individual district judge issued a nationwide injunction barring those. The was it both programs, or was it? It was not. No, no. They, they didn't now. challenge the 2012 DACA program. This is for kids, which was for kids, but childhood they, arrivals. Is yeah, yeah, the childhood arrivals. Think, yeah. That's right. Um, uh, basically, kids who arrived at a young age and had no negative factors, and you know, had graduated from high school. Uh, so, so th- there was, there was that program. What, what Obama did in 2014 was expand that program. So the expansion was challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he also, you know, launched, uh, tried to launch a new program, which would have benefited the, the parents of U.S. citizens. And between the two Obama of those, residents. it's an attempt not to split up families in the United That's States, right. right? Yeah. Yeah. To focus on, on families and, and really on, on, uh, Youth. And there's this challenge in, in Texas. Texas challenges this saying that you don't have the authority. This is essentially making a new law and, and you don't have the authority to pass a law on your own. This exceeds your, uh, the authority delegated to you by the immigration statutes on the books. And a district court judge agrees. And I, I'm not stating the claims very precisely, <laughs> but a district court judge agrees and issues an injunction, which enjoins this nationwide. Right? You can't. And, and people were somewhat outraged. So that, the two, uh, by the two proceedings have that in common, right? A state in its own name. I guess, on behalf of its citizens or for some other reason, it runs universities and it's worried about X, Y, or Z, or it runs driver licenses issuing authorities and has expense A, B, and C. Uh, a state in its own name brings a suit against the United States and uh, it, it is granted standing to press that claim. And the district court judge enjoins nationwide. I mean, the two cases sound alike in that respect. Right. So the, in terms of the, the standing aspect Although of it, different people's oxes are getting gored, well, obviously. Well, puts in a restraining order nationwide. So, yeah. so, so Washington right. against Trump, I don't think we've said exactly. It's the state of Washington. Right. On its, I think both in parents' patria, although that's fallen out. But, it's, but it administers universities, as you say, has other yeah. things where it has workers involved in those state programs sure, sure. who would be barred from entry under the under Trump's executive America order under the Muslim Texas ban. Was, it was driver license expenses would increase. That was, the, some other, that was the main one. That's yeah, right. So, and so one hurdle is, does, does Washington have standing as a state to sue? And we get into these technical things of standing. That was part of what the Ninth Circuit heard, right. as you say. Um, and then all, then we get into the substance. And this is what we, uh, I think, came up at the very beginning of our conversation, whether you said that you thought maybe the statutory grounds there were stronger than the constitutional ones. With Steve last week, we talked about some of these constitutional grounds, uh, the Establishment Clause being only one of those, but yeah. maybe the mo- maybe one of the most interesting ones. It certainly came up. Uh, I agree Judge with Friedland that. brought it up. But w- yeah. w- what were you going to say about this, Jason? Well, so um, one of the ways that Obama's uh, executive actions were criticized was because they didn't go through, you know, the kind of the, 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 the traditional notice and comment procedures um, it, resulting in an agency regulation, mm-hmm. right? I mean, instead, it was just this executive action or executive order. Um, and similarly, that's, that's so there was what no we chance for here. public comment as just one example of one of the things you'd get with agency right. you would rulemaking. Get, you would get comments from not just agencies, but um, but also the public stakeholders yeah. in general um, and, and the public. And uh, and there's a there's a difference there because it's at least from indications so far, it seems like the Trump administration did not really go through even an internal process with the different agencies involved in implementing this and um can sort of witness that in the kind of confusion among the agencies about what to do about the order in the days afterwards. Um, yeah, but it was, it but was a disaster. It was a mess. Right. But <laughs> it's a similarity in that, that there's a, there's a, there's a possibly a 
you know, a viable APA type um, claim against both of them. But, the, but, but, and then one more is that, um, which I think could be the, could, I think could be the statutory downfall here is that um, the Fifth Circuit in the Texas case said, look, the INA, the INA is massive and um, it's complicated. And there's all these different ways that Congress decided that a person could be lawfully present here. And yes, past presidents have from time to time, you know, decided that these small little interstitial classes of persons could be lawfully present, but it was never something that was affecting millions of people like this just through, a, just through the unilateral executive action. Uh, and I think a, a similar com, uh, uh, charge can be made against Trump's executive orders, which is that they basically have created a new category of inadmissibility, mm-hmm. right? Um, and they, uh, if you were from one of these seven countries, you are now inadmissible, even if you might otherwise have had a valid route um, under Congress's statute uh, to, uh, to enter the United States. Um, and then there's a sort of, there, there are sub-arguments to that because because um, you got to get around that one provision. I don't remember the number, which says two twelve F. Yeah, exactly. Two twelve F, which yeah. says, do you want to? I, I, I don't yeah, know. Exactly, it basically but. says that the president has the authority to suspend um, the the entry of individuals or classes of individuals if if deemed to be in the national interest. Very very broad delegation of authority. Sure is. Um, and so then there's the question, you know, is that cabined by other provisions of the INA, which enacted later or, um, or which could be read to, to sort of impose limits on mm-hmm. it. So one of them that everybody talks about is that you can't discriminate at the, um, on the basis of, of, of place of birth or, or country of origin in your issuance of visas. Of visas, visas, right? Not entry. And so you get into this thing, well, maybe you have to issue them a visa, but you don't have to admit them. Well, that's possible. And right? then, and mm-hmm. then you run into the fact that we make distinctions in uh, in, in admission based on national origin all the time, or we've done it in other instances. So you have to figure out what's different about those times where you think it's okay that we had temporary stops on entry from certain national origins, but not others. So it, it's a very right. complicated. So, but, but so that, yeah. that circles back to what I was just saying about um, the Texas case, which is that when that authority 212F has been used before, it's typically been for these little like targeted um gap filling or, or measures, right? Never, never something that's so, um, quite so broad as this. And, and that's the same criticism that was, that was levied against, um, the Obama administration. Does Congress, uh, in, in your, in your, in the immigration field and people who are writing about it, like you do at such depth, um, is there a sense that Congress is wary of, uh, making some kinds of determinations because they want to make sure that the president has to take the blame if something goes wrong? Good question. <laughs> uh, Don't because, know. because it seems like they, they, they might have real preferences here about uh, uh, that they could state in general and uh, neutral and general forward-looking standards, mm-hmm. right? That, that wouldn't be these sort of micro movements within the structure of the statute, but would instead be, hey, this might affect millions of people, but we think it's the appropriate standard and, and, it, this, and, and this should be okay and this should not be okay. So it seems like they're, they're very eager to talk about things that make you a bad person who shouldn't be here. Um, but other than that, they're sort of not too interested in the details. And, and it seems like that might be an effort to, you know, grab the executive and put 
him or her between the public and the member of Congress and say, look, this is a president's... Well, de- deference rules are always at the horns of that dilemma, right? I mean, any anytime you defer, you know, you can think of like the AUMF that we talked about last week, the authorization for the use of military force or the general authorization, right, uh, um, uh, that, that you might make in any kind of war making thing. Or, or you can even think about this, the Supreme Court approving of affirmative action in in higher ed so long as the higher ed institutions don't say too much about it. Right. It's, it's, it's always like, (laughs) right. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you can think of different reasons for that. One is, you know, you do that because if it goes badly, you'll take the blame. That's one reason to place authority on someone, right. Is to say that, Hey, it needs doing you do it. Right. This is why people get authority sometimes. Another is true expertise. I think you're better at doing this and and you should do this. Um, Another is you, you will be more representative of, you know, you're the right person to take in input, et cetera. And, and, and yet another is if we have a dialogue about this, then too much of, of the dirty details of how it needs to be done will come out. And so if we locate the authority exclusively in one institution, then they can just do things. And maybe that's what's going on here a little bit. Like, right. you know, there are some, uh, some, some, maybe some dirty discriminations that have to happen at the border and we want those to happen, but let's not talk about them. So we'll just give you plenary authority. Whereas if we had and more detailed regulation. And if we want to send you signals, we'll be able to send you signals. We won't have to say yeah. that, that terrible thing we don't want to say. It sounds like all this is swimming around So I'm just filibustering here. a little bit to give yeah. Jason a chance to give us an the authoritative, uh, see if we're going to pl- lay no, the blame on Jason. You yeah. know, I, I, um, I don't know. I, I think, I think uh, just... This this may or may not be responsive to that, but um, the other kind of statutory element that's going on here that I think that that is Congress speaking, right, is that Congress said, here are all these different kinds of visas, right? Here are the ways um, that you can, and these are both immigrant visas and non-immigrant visas. So a lot, you know, people who are coming here just as students and workers, um, and here are the ways they can be revoked. Right. There's a guy there's actually for each one of them, there's a there's a sort of way that it, um, it it can be revoked. And there's this sort of just this understanding of reciprocity that it's good for our country, that uh, Im- non-immigrants and immigrants are going to come in on these visas and they have to abide by the terms of them. So long as they do, we, we, you know, we, we, we reap the benefits and they get to rely on that statutory structure that's been put in place. Right. So in that sense, there's not a. Um, there's not there's 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 not a delegation to the executive branch except for to fairly administer those statutes. There really are some details there. There are some details, and so that's another sort of statutory reason. To, I mean, that's a, a I, I think possibly a statutory constraint on the two twelve F power. It would make no because because they don't say wh- one of the in none of them as far as like no is is two twelve F listed as one of the valid ways that a visa could be revoked, right? And so it's, they don't list it, you know, it, it's, it's there and somebody's going to have to figure out how strong is 212 up. Does it, does it override everything else, including all these sort of um, almost like due process provisions that Congress put out for the revocation of visas in the normal case? So in the, in the, in the three or six month time horizon, rather than the, the three or six day or three or six week, right? What are you, what are you... <laughs> looking out for and what are you telling an immigration law student to look out for in terms of like what 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 are the developments that are in the offing here this is assuming no impeachment implosion nuclear war or 
or or application of the 25th Amendment. I'm happy to accept all of those qualifications, okay, assuming so none of those things. In this crazy hypothetical world where none of those things happens, Jason. For, what, well, for one, one thing. And I'm, assuming we're not all ordered to wear Ivanka Trump clothes. <laughs> I mean, it's just like anything can happen. Okay. Anything, I, I admit that. Anything can happen. Yeah. Anything can happen. <laughs> Um, one convenience is that I'm not teaching immigration law this semester, nice. which is, a, um, which is, I think it's a challenging time to, to yeah. keep a, a heck of a semester it. to teach immigration law. It sure is. I'm, I'm glad to have a small respite from that till next year. Um, you know, here's the thing. Um, at the end of the day, I think that the Trump administration is going to get almost exactly what it wants um, in this, it, with respect to anyone who doesn't already have a visa. So all this stuff that we're arguing about really, in my mind, um, is, is only going to be decided with respect to people who are, who are lawfully here or possibly those who are still outside the United States and have been here lawfully before. And even more attenuated, but still a kind of a maybe is people who have a visa, but have never, ever been here at all. Haven't mm-hmm. arrived yet. Who've never arrived, who never entered before. Um, and this kind of goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, you know, which is, I think, you know, being inside the United States has always been, and having been admitted into the United States has always been a kind of constitutional touchstone in terms of how much you can invoke the Constitution, right, for equal protection reasons and for due process reasons and, and so forth. Now, the, 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 where I might be wrong in this, um, well, sorry, just to finish that thought. So what that means is six months down the line, you know, these questions will have been worked out and I suspect will have been worked out only with, res- with respect to um, people who have already gotten visas and just a sort of, there's a sort of a fairness and notice. Um, cons- and, and also, you know, if the states have standing, I guess there's a reliance concern, right, for the states mm-hmm. too. And sort of they, they uh, um, employed people. I mean, of course, if you were, bu- if you were booking a, a music festival for the summer and you wanted to hire an Iranian band, like you, you'd be really stuck because you would have no idea at this point whether that that. Well, you wouldn't. I mean, you wouldn't hire them. You basically wouldn't. So, so that's what's that's what's happening for those those folks. There's there's a, there's a great deal of uncertainty about that. But in six months, we'll probably know, you know, what what to think about this. And then this, the the State Department simply won't um, issue visas to people from those countries anymore. And I think that will be challenging to force. Us for, to force the government to process visas from yeah. countries where they don't want to. Um, now, what I, what I really, out of my depth, but, but super fascinated by is this establishment clause idea and whether um, between, you know, sort of if, if the Ninth Circuit or, or the district court in that case, if it goes back to the district court first, um, it's going to cobble together this, theory, this idea of standing um, that that persons inside the United States actually have standing to raise an establishment clause to a um, immigration policy that seems to favor um, a particular religion or discriminates against a particular religion or that just favor, favor, favors religious type claim, refugee claims in general. Yeah, it's we raised it last time. I, I just think you can't overstate and and people usually talk about what if it were a real Muslim ban or what if it were only a Muslim ban? I think another way of thinking about it is basically what they've argued is through a combination of standing, executive power, and, and um, lack of evidence. <laughs> I mean, the, the basic argument is that the executive has unreviewable authority to prevent the grant of any tourist visas to Christians, right? I mean, who would have standing to, ch- who, how would you be able to challenge that? 
unless there is in fact some standing and, and and i think you saw that in the argument in the ninth circuit the which i called on twitter i said this is like the worst phone call ever did you <laughs> it, was it was weird that it was on the phone it Why was a good argument go though. i mean the judge is super smart the lawyers i thought were good i mean there yeah. were parts of it which were awkward just because it, really it, it was on the phone, was on but, the phone. But, yeah. but um uh but that was where you started to see the government lawyer concede a little bit that maybe somebody would be able to challenge like a real a true muslim ban i happen to think this is a real Muslim band, but yeah, but, right. but that aside, mm-hmm. we're not going to get to all this today. Did you have anything else you wanted to cover Jason? Because I wanted to say something else about Jason Cade. Oh, cool. Oh, what an awesome musician he is. I was going to say he is in a band hog eyed man. Oh, thank you. And is an award-winning fiddle player. And you, I noticed you didn't bring your instrument with you today. No, I have two different worlds. This could have been, <laughs> and never the two shall meet. Yeah. You don't start talking about like Daka and Dapa at, 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 uh, at Fiddle Festival. <laughs> if I want to clear out the room, I might. <laughs> Do you guys have an event next week? I feel like I saw something next week, an event that you have. Yeah, we are, we are playing at the White Tiger Gourmet That's listening room. That's yeah. right. Oh boy, if you're in Athens. Well, whenever we do Oral Argcon, mm. which we will do one day. We're going to have to, we're going to have to have a bake sale and we're going to have to really raise some funds in order to afford to, um, bring in hog eyed man mm. to provide entertainment. Good point. I can get you a discount. Okay. I think. Is that especially, awesome? for, especially for this free commercial. I really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I already included, you know, I, 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 I pre-typed up, pre-typed up a few show notes. Show notes will be a little light this week because mm. of all that's going on. Right. But, but I did include in there a link to your, to your fancy schmancy website and Thank people you. can learn all about the multi-talented Jason Cade. And purchase CDs. Shucks. Of awesome music. Well, and then we should also on iTunes, right? As far as I know. So yeah. you can access this awesome music in all kinds of ways. CDs are those. The, CDs are the um, CD players are those, um, <laughs> those car, the car stereos that you see in Trans Am exactly. sometime. Is that yeah. what it is? Okay. We yeah. also have floppy disks. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't like the music, you can get a little piece of tape and you can cover over that little notch and you can put your own, you know, you can put a game on there or something. Cool. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. You can. <laughs> is there, I'm is, not too young to have done that. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, man. I, yeah. Yeah. All the time. You get those AOL discs in the mail, you just cover up that little notch and, and boom, you're, you're golden. You're saving your, you're saving your, um, Ultima five game right nice. on there. Uh, is there anything else we need to cover, Jason? I don't I mean, think so. Unless there's anything else you want to cover. I mean, we, we could save the world if we keep talking, I feel like, but I just, I think that might take a while. Hmm. Um, yeah, we might be able to. We might be able to. I'm think- more skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind trying. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh boy, these days, am I right? Yeah. The, one of the biggest reasons why I feel some, I feel some hesitation and, and regret as I end any conversation <laughs> Is because I know that that means I have to go back and learn more about something that's happened while I've been talking to somebody. Like something terrible will have occurred. Like I'm going to open up TweetBot, I'm going to pull to refresh, and I'm like, I'm going to be, be like, like, oh my. <laughs> Actually, my entire family was banished to Antarctica. Oh. Oops. Oh, that, now Antarctica. Now that, that I could get on Depending board Depending on with. the time of year. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But, it would be an adventure. Yeah. So Ar- com- like a conversation is this sort of cocoon <laughs> against the... the 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 endless arbitrary horrors of the world. Yes, the oral argument cocoon. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Got to end. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Thank you for letting me me be part of it. Uh, yeah, it's been it's our wonderful. pleasure. Thanks a bunch, man. <laughs>